This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK7. And by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help us move toward that Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new Alien Badges, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and normally I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Rushing, but Matthew is on vacation this week, so I'm flying solo. I'm heading over to Starfleet's Stellar Cartography Center right now, where I'll be meeting with Larry Nemechek for the feature today. We're going to talk about mapping the stars. But before we do that, I'm going to run down a little bit of books and comics news for you, just a couple of items. The first thing we have up today is that Jeff Marriott has been dropping some hints about his TOS novel, Serpents in the Garden. Now, this is one of the novels that's slated for early 2014, and, you know, we've been getting a lot of TOS novels in the first half of this year leading up into, into darkness. And we have the fall coming up in the fall. Nice naming there, as we've talked about on the show before. And the Enterprise book is out now. Uh, but next year, we will be getting back into more TOS things. And what Jeff said on his Facebook page is that Serpents in the Garden is not going to be a five-year mission adventure. So it's not going to take place during the television series. But rather, what Jeff says is that the book is about Rear Admiral Kirk trying to set straight some unintended consequences arising from one of his most difficult decisions during his original five-year mission. So this looks like it's going to be a bit of a follow-up. And what Jeff said in follow-up to that comment was he mentioned that the title of the book is a hint in and of itself, and it's a hint to a connection to a TOS episode. Now, if you remember, in the episode of Private Little War, Kirk referred to the weapons that the Klingons were giving to one side of the native population and the weapons that Kirk was going to give to the other side as serpents in the Garden of Eden. And so it does seem that what Jeff is saying here is that this novel is probably going to be a follow-up to the decisions that Kirk made in A Private Little War. So, It'll kind of be interesting, especially, you know, with Into Darkness revolving around Kirk violating the Prime Directive on Nibiru. And, of course, what we saw in the comics when he was involved with Robert April on Fetus. It looks like this book 
maybe just coincidentally, we'll be continuing that trend. So looking forward to that coming out in the first third of 2014. Also coming out in the first third of 2014 is a new TOS novel from Greg Cox. And this novel is called No Time Like the Past. And Greg was talking on Trek BBS, and he mentioned that this book will be a five-year mission story. And he said, of course, as the title suggests, it's definitely a time travel story, or at least there are time travel elements in here. And he says it may just have a connection to one of the Latter-day series. So we could be seeing a little bit of a tie-in here for Kirk, Spock, and the crew of the original Enterprise somehow hooking up with, you know, someone from TNG, DS9, Voyager. We don't know yet. Uh, We'll have to, to wait until we get more information on this. But nice little hints there from Greg. And again, that's going to be coming out in the first third of 2014 as well. And both of these items are from the Trek Collective, and they gave us a shout out in the same piece about our show with William Leisner. So we just want to thank Trek Collective for giving us a shout out and encourage everyone to go over, you know, and check out all the great book and news coverage that they've got going over there as well. They're a great source of information for us here on Literary Treks as we look to find what's happening with books and comics each week so we can fill you in. So go check them out, thetrekcollective.com. Now, the other news item that we have this week revolves around comics, and this is IDW's Star Trek Volume 5. This is the next in the series of trade paperbacks that are collecting the ongoing comics. So for those of you who don't like to buy the one-offs when they come out, you prefer to wait for the collections, Volume 5 is going to collect ongoing number 17 through 20. And this is going to be out, according to Amazon, on Tuesday, July 16th. Now, I mean, these typically come out on Wednesday, but Amazon says Tuesday. There is no listing right now in Comixology or the Star Trek Comics app. So we'll find out one of those two days. Hopefully, it will drop on schedule. It's going to be 104 pages. And the retail price is $17.99, although currently Amazon has it available for pre-order if you want to get the paperback version for $13.49 or on Kindle, $9.69. I also looked in iBooks for those of you who prefer that method of reading. And Volume 5 isn't listed right now, but Volume 4 is there. It sells for $7.99. And that's the same price that Comixology and the Star Trek Comics app has for volumes one through four as well. So it does look like this will come out in digital format, probably at the same time we'll find out uh, two weeks from now when it drops. But if you've been holding off for ongoing 17 through 20, here's your chance to get it for a great price and a nice easy way to read. You know, it's it's nice how they read kind of like chapters in a book if you get them that way. So uh, we'll keep our eyes out for that for you as well and update you on next week's show. Now it's almost time to pick up Larry, but before we arrive, I do want to tell you about our sponsor for this week's show, Squarespace. Now Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, a portfolio, or an online store. And when we say all-in-one, what we mean is that you're getting hosting 
and you're getting the CMS, the content management system, both included in your monthly service fee. So, you know, if you're accustomed to using something like WordPress where that's your CMS, but you still need to get hosting somewhere else and, you know, do that install, that's not how it works with Squarespace. It's all rolled up into one. You just go to Squarespace, you sign up, they host you with their fantastic grid hosting, and you have this really brilliant, I mean it, brilliant CMS to use that it just makes it such a joy to build your website because you can just focus on the content. You don't have to think about that coding and, you know, all that stressful part of building for the web. Now, right now, Squarespace invites you to create your own space, and they've put together a really cool and brief video that visually demonstrates how their diverse users are doing amazing things with Squarespace and doing them simply and easily. In the video, they show you how you can create your own idea, business, image, canvas, style, anthem, store, website, or space. You know, it's really anything that you can think of that you want to present online, you can do it with Squarespace. And Layout Engine makes it easy to build your pages with absolutely no HTML coding knowledge. And Responsive Design automatically makes sure that your site looks great in any desktop browser or on any device. It's incredibly easy to use. But, you know, if you need help, Squarespace is there for you. They have seriously some of the most amazing support that I have ever seen with any company. Their support's available 24-7. You know, you can hit them up on the website. They have great support channels through there. You can even ping them on Twitter. They respond so quickly, and they're really dedicated to helping you out. It's really fantastic. Now, you might be thinking that it's such a great service, you know, it must cost a reasonable amount, but actually it's extremely affordable. Squarespace starts at just $8 a month. And if you sign up for the annual plan, you'll even get a free custom domain name. So you can register your name.com, you know, whatever, your, your, your company name, your blog name, and you can easily hook that up to Squarespace and, and you've got your own presence in a flash. Now, it starts at $8. That's the standard. That really gives you pretty much everything you need. But if you want to build a larger site and you want to have unlimited pages, you can get that for $16. And that's really the most popular. And that's what I use as well, both for my personal blog, for Trek FM as well. And then if you want to set up your own store and you want to integrate with Stripe, which is you know probably the best way you can find these days to process credit cards calculate taxes, uh, you know, handle shipping and such. That's just $24. And Squarespace doesn't take anything from the sales that you make through your store there. You just pay a small fee uh, per transaction to Stripe as you would with any uh, shopping system online. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Just go there and try it out for yourself. You can try Squarespace for free for 14 days. No credit card required. You just put your name in, you put in an email address, You'll get a trial site instantly. You can you know, start building from scratch if you want. You can import your existing site from WordPress or other platforms. See how it's going to look. See how the tools make working with the web a pleasure and not a chore. And then when you sign up, and I know you will, you can use our offer code TREK7 to get 10% off as a Trek FM listener. 
I really encourage you to check it out. I've been a customer for six years now. I have a lot of sites that are built on Squarespace. I promise you're going to love it. And your support of Squarespace makes it possible for us to bring you this programming each week. So please go over and check them out. Squarespace.com, give it a spin, and be sure to use offer code TREK7. And now, let's go pick up Larry. Today we're joined for our feature by Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechik, who many of you may not be aware of the fact that he is a stellar cartographer. Hey, Larry, how are you today? I'm Now, wait, am I a stellar cartographer or am I a stellar, stellar cartographer? I mean, what? I'm confused already. I'm sorry. You're both inflections. You are both <laughs> a stellar cartographer and a stellar cartographer. Oh, Okay. Starring our stellar car- No, no, no. Okay, that's... Uh. <laughs> so, Larry, I know you've been working on a book project for a while, and uh, the news is now out there. It's available for pre-order. It's Star Trek Stellar Cartography, the Starfleet Reference Library. And I thought it would be nice today to talk to you more about this book. And, but before we get into this book, a lot of fans know that you were a contributor to Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Mandel's Star Trek Star Charts, which came out in Mm -hmm. 2002. But that was not the first time that you set out to map the stars, was it? No, no, no. Back in 1872. um, No. No, this is is the thing. After the first little wave of fanboyishness, the thing that kind of got me by the, uh, you know, everybody reacts to something when they, when it, when we all fall for something like Star Trek or whatever a modern incarnation is or whatever, there's always one thing that gets you by the gonads. There's one thing that like just grabs your imagination or whatever it is and sets you on fire. Maybe you've been kind of like reading a little bit along, but there's something that like you just go crazy and go off the edge. And the, for me, what that was was not like sitting down and writing fanzine stories like a lot of people did and not, wanting to go build, although I built models and I built my little props and stuff. The thing that made me crazy was when B. Joe's Concordance came out and I was going through it and going, oh my God, it's all here. It's All this stuff is all organized. Oh my God, oh my God. Even more than the Technic Manual. And then I went, and after a while, it kind of dawned on me that there was all these loose stars and planets just kind of floating around. And some of them were real stars and some of them were, you know... Alpha Hibiscus 4. I mean, and some of them were just like wacky doodle planets, and some, you know, were like Fred's planet. And uh, it was like, these were all just, it just drove me crazy they weren't organized. And so the first, I think, the first kind of mega thing I did that was really a research project when I was in high school was to um, start, starting with real astronomy and then adding in story points and then finding what was kind of floating around loose and trying to tie it down by story points but do a do a stellar cartography do a star atlas for star trek and the first thing out of the box back in those days uh people kind of overlooked it because they were so busy looking at the patches and the wacky ships and the federation constitution but the original franz joseph schnabelt um and yes schnabelt was really his last name he wasn't just franz joseph the original tech manual, uh, he had two or three pages where he did a galaxy, you know, the disk of the galaxy and laid out a, a layout. Now, that was very early, and today people would like, huh, and it's been way bypassed, but back in the day, that's what was out there. So that's what I based mine on and what he'd set down. So I worked on that for a couple of years, and I went to college, 
and I did really nice. Uh, I I did a thing where it was like a, a big hand. But in those days, you hand lettered everything if you want to be nice with letter set rub on letter, no right, computer right. printout, right? So yeah. um, anyway, that was a poster in my wall, and then uh, and then I found Jeff Mandel through the Medical Reference way back then. When it came out, and I wrote him in a very polite letter, and I said, uh, I love this book, I love this book. And it was the medical reference, but they mentioned a lot of planets for some of the species. And I said, oh, there's a couple of things. Like the planet you have for the Klingons is closer to us than Rigel. And, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote me back finally and said, well, I'm writing you. He said, you're not the only person that said all this? He said, A, famous last words of Star Trek, even then. I never thought anybody would notice or care. <laughs> you know. <laughs> of course they would. Um, you're you're not the only person to write me about this. But C, you're the ni- out of two or three thousand people, you're like the nicest one. <laughs> so um you know, there was such a thing as fan slamming and fan snark back then, even though it was on paper. So anyway, yeah. uh he said I do this zine. I would love to take your maps and put them in the style of zine and publish it there in his in his um in his tech zine, which became his little self-published book, The Officer's Manual. And guys, this is back in the day when licensing didn't have a clue what background was aside from, you know, an episode guide kind of a thing. So um, so that was all set up. And then the last thing that Bantam did before Pocket Books had all the license to the books, fiction and nonfiction, in 1970 was they'd done a contract for a Star Trek map set. These two big poster maps and a little booklet. And a guy named uh, Mike McMaster had gotten famous doing bridge blueprints and Romulan blueprints and Klingon Klingon D7 blueprints. And he was working on that, was killed in a car wreck. And uh, the publisher, and his name escapes me, he had the store in New York, uh, New Eye Studio. Uh, Jeff Maynard? Uh, Yes, Jeff Maynard. Hey. Uh, He hired Jeff Mandel to finish out the project, which was going to be Bantam. It was a whole new scale. It made a lot more sense scale-wise for the ship propulsion. So all the work we had done on coordinates and distance and all that was out the window, but some of my stuff stayed in. I got published. I got ripped off. Several of us got our names taken out, and I got burned, and I said, well, on Star Trek, I'm going to go back with real life. I have a life, thank you. And went on, and then the next generation came out and kind of ended the era of the open-ended, we have a vacuum on our backgrounding. You know, it wasn't just a matter of filling in canon. Now we have new canon being cranked out. And, you know, Michael Kuda very quickly set up the quadrant, the new quadrant system by the third season of Next Gen with the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta quadrants. And, and we were off and running, and those shows were cranking out so much background. You didn't have, you know, everything we had done earlier was kind of moot now. But you were used to working on that kind of process. So what was very cool in 2002, you mentioned uh, the the contract that, that Jeff got with Pocket, and which by then Pocket was kind of like desperately trying to find new ways to do nonfiction on a budget, nonfiction mm-hmm. books. So that that book was really incredible considering it was full color and he did all the things himself. So what was funny was he was working on that in 2000 and 2001. So it was like 20 years after we had done – you know, like the second iteration of my own stuff, only I was working with him, and here we are working together again. It was we had all these jokes about you know every twenty years we're gonna get together and do a map book. <laughs> but um, so that came out, and all I really did on that was I mean I wrote a lot of notes, and we went back to our old original things, and I helped him with a lot of stuff like planet colors and and stuff that I just had in my database, you know, which was before you know the internet 
and memory alpha ruled the world and you couldn't just look that stuff up even then even 2000 2001 it wasn't universal so aside from that i wrote the chapter openings to that and then there are a lot of people a lot of people in the art department and he was working on the the uh, enterprise art department then so that book came out and it was great and they had the foldouts at the back, and I know a lot of people – I have a very rare copy he had done of the whole thing put out as one poster, which I think a lot of people oh, are probably cool. crying for. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. that gets us up to now. But that was – he did a ton of work, and based on um, – and the fan name escapes me, but he didn't reinvent the wheel, but he took it to a whole level from a lot of reasoning. It's kind of like working out the timeline chronology like the way Mike and Denise did looking around, seeing what people had done, and then taking it to a new level and kind of getting an imprimatur of um, officialness to it and then getting the shows to use it. And um, that kind of happened with the maps for the rest of the run of Enterprise a little bit. But, um, yeah, people wishing they had the big poster maps and all that, the tech heads loving the book. Some people still, you know, everybody always has their quibbles. It's like anything else, ship design or whatever. But uh, that pretty much became – that's what Star Trek Online based their, um, you know, their system. By the way, you can tell what what era a, a game system came out. Like Starfleet Battles is based on the Franz Josephs. FASA is based on the Bantam map from 1980. And Online is based on, you know, Jeff's maps from 2002. But so right, is the right. show now. So, so anyway, that kind of gets us up to today. And then we've kind of had a new world of nonfiction publishing and um, – Actually, not my idea, but after David Goodman did his book with uh, Becker Mayer, the book packagers last year that was published through Amazon, uh, they came back and wanted to do something that way. And um, uh, between them and our friends at CBS Licensing, they came up with the idea for the stellar cartography thing, and they actually approached me about doing it. So three three artists and myself, the three artists worked on the maps, and I worked on the book part. And I kind of oversaw the – because there's so much god-awful detail <laughs> or glorious detail depending on how you're – if you haven't just worked on it for four months. Um, right. Yeah. So I'll take a breath. So that's where we are, Chris. Um, okay. And Jeff actually did a very huge map uh, map in this. But uh, I, I we'll talk about this, but I think a lot of people maybe have a slight misconception about the format of it. But I'll take a sip maybe. and hush for a second. <laughs> that's the story so far. It's very interesting, the history of Larry Nemechik, comma, stellar cartographer. <laughs> and that's how you get to today. Um, well, you know, Star Trek, Star Charts, the 2002 book, I, I have a copy here in the studio, and it's it's a very nicely produced reference book. The The mm-hmm. paper that's used is quite nice, very heavy, you know, art quality paper. And the maps are, are very beautiful. But this book was... Only published in paperback, I believe, correct? Right. Whereas the new book is actually going to be a nice hardcover volume. Mm-hmm. Now, so here's where we talk about the, the actual format of this product. There's times when I almost hate to call it a book. People were saying I, – I was reading online – for one thing, the online reaction has been like incredible, which is great. It's nice to mm-hmm. see you know, all the background freaks and tech heads and canonistas coming out. So I hope nobody's disappointed at all because you know, there's a lot of – even though it was a fairly – I don't want to say rushed, a fairly compressed timeline, we didn't, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We start with Jeff's system from the O2 book, and we just take it in some new directions. Uh, we did have some updating to do. We had the last three years of Enterprise to add in. Yeah, that's one and- thing I wanted to ask you about was because 2002 was – we were into – 
Well, I guess when you were actually putting together the maps, you would have still definitely been only in the second season of Enterprise, right? So things first like the season. Delphic Expanse. Yeah, even first o- seasons too. Oh, one yeah. to oh two, right, right, right. So in terms of updating, will this book include things like the Delphic Expanse from the third season of Enterprise? Yes. That was what the two main things to update actually were the Delphic Expanse and and then we we dealt with um the Hobus supernova from from JJ's uh we you know okay. JJ's in there because yeah. the the prime you know nothing to do with Vulcan Vulcan's still safely sitting around Fort Eridania and and nowhere in in aired canon do they give it a name but Orson Kurtzman gave it the gave the original star uh, as Hobus, and then there's another star, uh, Kimbin. They also, in the comic, and maybe you've talked about this in Literary Treks also, they also, to get around the bad science of just having this, this supernova that goes on and on and on, it's going to eat half the galaxy, right, they yeah, came yeah. up with calling it a subspace supernova. So it was kind of like a shockwave okay. through subspace, So which means you can do any any damn thing you want to now. So, And it can be any color of matter it needs to be. So, uh, so, um, so we went with Hobus, and which I noticed that Star Trek Online had also done already. So we kind of looked around to see, and we actually took Star Trek Online's location. It, it made sense. It started at first like, um, if it's a real supernova, it's kind of like it's kind of like looking at Praxis in Star Trek Six and going, why did it explode only in a two-dimensional ring and didn't you know right. come out in all directions? Because <laughs> it looked prettier as a ring. I, that's cool. I had an effects guy tell me. He says, no, we just couldn't conceive it as a spherical. You know, explosion. So it was much prettier as a ring, like ripples in a pond. So uh, they had Hobus way over closer to Romulus rather than like down by the border you would expect, but that's okay because it's a subspace supernova. It can go one direction more. You know, it's more backed up over here. And we had this joke about the Hobus wall that why it didn't come into the Federation. But anyway, um, so we explained it that way. We took a page from them. So that was a nice little continuity thing we did that way was is that where the Romulan Senate said Ambassador Spock (laughs) tear down that wall yes uh yeah if we're gonna go you're gonna go you're out of here too that's what it was but um that was the two main things the supernova and uh and the expanse and the expanse was tricky because when you get into it it was supposed to be uh it was the entry point was 50 light years from earth there's only there's very little said tied down about it Part of it was when they went through the thermobaric cloud the first time, they were 50 light years from Sol, from the solar system. At one point later on, they were 50 light years. After they had been in it floating around for a while, they were 50 light years from Earth. And the expanse itself was said to be 2,000 light years across, which two things. A, if you look at the map that we had established, which is, you know, at that scale, you're so close in. Two thirds of the stars mentioned are all real stars. We're 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 down in close there with Deneb and Altair and Forty Eridani and and Persian and all this stuff. So and and um, uh, Epsilon Eridani and and I mean uh, Epsilon Indian. So you're down into like really close stars. So if there's this honking thing two thousand light years long, it's all it's like how did they just now find out about it? Why was it not enveloping everything? And so. It hit me one day. How do we work that in to be only only um, you know fifty light years from Earth? And uh, I hope I'm saying that right. It's been a while since I've worked on this. Yeah. What I came up with is, you know, you know, remember your three three dimensional thinking, Mister Khan. Um, instead of having it laying, we get so trapped into thinking about the plane view of the galaxy, which is a conceit 
we deal well, with anyway, right? It affects Starfleet captains too. I mean, look at Janeway, you know, she she typically <laughs> viewed space as being two-dimensional. Oh, right? well, Janeway got a headache from time travel. What do you, so what do you expect? <laughs> you know, she, uh, what we basically came up with is we, we get so used to thinking of it as like the clock face, you know, if yeah. you're if you're thinking of it again, two dimensional versus three dimensional, look at it through things. So what we basically did was have the thickness of the disc, which at most is like ten thousand light years, but it gets it's that's really when it's thin. In the it's about two to three thousand thick in the middle. We basically have it. Uh, it's kind of like a. I think the image we came up with is Jeff was saying, "You mean like a limp noodle?" And I said, "No, more like a limp, like a lasagna noodle, or a bean bag." Mm-hmm. But basically, it's like a bean bag that is uh, up and down. If you took turn the galaxy sideways, like it's a plate looking at a plate from the side instead of looking at the mm-hmm. plate head on, as you're eating over it. If you look at it from the side, it's like a it's like a, a bean bag that's that's like this. So now, if if here's Saul, you can enter it set at 25 light years. You can be flying within it, but all you're doing is coming back down. So at another point, you're still 25 light years, and if you look at the actual footprint in the plane view, it's not very big, but it is 2,000 miles. So what they're really doing is going up and down relative to the – I know I've lost everybody mm-hmm. by now, but it'll make sense <laughs> when you see it. You're going up and down within the, the, the thinness of the galaxy rather than across like we usually think of. Like, you know, We get right. into a conceit of thinking our little galaxy maps and our Star Trek maps are like a two-dimensional terrestrial map, and they're, they're right, not. There's yeah. ups and downs. Uh, but it's relatively small, and we just kind of round off, and we we don't think about it unless we really need to. Like we need to have Sharon was or Sharon was said to be at the bottom of, of the galaxy, so we have to think of it being way way down there. And that's why, even though it looks like Sharon is like in the middle of things, they're really isolated because they're so far down. Right. <laughs> so so the uh, so the Delphic expanse is going up and down, and that's how we answer that. Yay. And were you able to? pinpoint the location of all of the spheres in the Delphic Expanse? No, we did not do that. <laughs> now, there is a there's a canon, there's a moment where they did a sphere chart where, uh, and you can see it at one of the online places, if not, watch it yourself. There's a place where uh, Archer's looking at a, a sphere map. They've they've gotten some intelligence kind of far far along into the plot, and he's looking, right. you know, and it's just a grid. It just looks like a million little atomic models on Tinker Toys, kind of a thing. No, we didn't go. We didn't go that extreme, but we did get mo- not uh, not all the planets, but we did do most of them located. And we have Azadi Prime, and we have um, two or three of the opening ones, and the, we have you know like old Zendis and new Zendis located mm-hmm. for the Zindi, but. Um, so yeah, it really wasn't that much updating to do, but the, as a concept, that was kind of difficult. To, right. And once, but once we broke through, it was like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> now you said that you started from Jeffrey's concept from the 2002 book. You also talked about having three artists working with you on the project. Now, did you did the artists actually redesign the maps? Are they visually different than what we see in the 2002 book? Well, okay, we keep the. Uh, for one thing, they were artists that had worked with. Uh, Becker Mayer. I didn't know. I know them now. They're really good people. Uh, one of them, Ian Fullwood, kind of. T- they're, they're, the maps fall two ways. Some of them are. Um, well, let me let me let me back up a second. The thing itself, I was talking about not being exactly a book. What you get is a clamshell. So it opens up like a book, and uh, it's a trifold. And the two outer things have a pocket. There's ten maps, uh, twenty-four by thirty-six inches, two two by three feet. 
on a really cool paper stock that doesn't crease easily. So even though they're going to be folded, if you get them out and you want to frame them right off the bat or something, they'll, you know, they're not going to do like the old maps and the old blueprints would always do, which is crack after you've used them a little bit. So uh, there's a pouch on each side, and there's there's five in one and five in the other. And then the book, it looks more like a, it's going to feel a little bit, although there's tons of text in it, it's going to feel a little bit like a giant hardback children's a big giant uh, children's book. The book mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, so there's like a spread for each map inside the text. It really is, it, it's, on one hand, it's more visually heavy than it is textual. But on the other hand, there's some really important textual concepts that I got to do, I got to play with and massage that have, to me, they've either been a gap or it's things that have been bugging. And it's like, I see fans running around in circles arguing. And, and although this obviously is an aired canon, it's my way of saying, you know, peace, peace. There is no need to be so confused and divided about this. And the other thing that I'm really, really proud of is that, and and uh, Jeff even copped out on this in the 2002 book, is our old friend, the Dominion War, <laughs> is like, what do you do? I mean, he had the system, but even then, this is like, his system was the best of all worlds, to, or best of both worlds, to coin a phrase. But even then, the Dominion War was hard to fit into that. And he copped out by just using four of the, you know, Okudogram, you know, art department uh, big wall maps that they had on the Defiant and Starbase 374. Mm -hmm. And they looked really impressive with all the arrows and there are all these stars. And if you're, you know, a little canonista like me, you're like, oh, look, they're using real stars in here. And, and one of the things I really wanted to do was make all that make sense from day one. But after you actually get them and pin them down and hold them up in the light of day, and any other tacky metaphor you can say, they don't hold up, which was a blessing in disguise. For one thing, there's two or three of them that have real stars, and the real stars are like – they're not within, oh, it's a little 10 by 15 you know, square light year grid here. No, it's not <laughs> because they'll have a star that's way too far away. And so one thing was – that was a bugaboo that went out. The, that was the rock off our back that went away because I just finally said, look, the only way these are going to make sense is if we just say those are the – these aren't actually a graphical representation of 3D space. These are even two-dimensional plane view, uh, P-L-A-N-E when I say that word. These are like the origin points. This is like non-linear, non – you know. Uh, what would be the word? They're not dimensional, true dimensional representations. They're not to scale. Those are like the origin points of the of the force, like the Romulan and Klingon or Cardassian forces are coming from there. So if it looks like they're two light years apart on the little wall map on the thing, they're not really. And that's the only sane way to go at it because otherwise they don't. They're not internally. They were just the guys are throwing story points up. In fact, one thing that 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 Jeff had wrong in two thousand two was. And we're getting way off the deep end here on Dominion War, but I know some. There's four guys out there that will love this. Um, maybe seven. Ooh, four to seven. Okay, <laughs> I didn't. Even, I didn't even. Wow, how random was that? Um, I'll love it. Matthew will love it. <laughs> there's two right there. <laughs> four of seven. Um, the the uh, you know the siege of AR five five eight. Yeah. AR five five eight was an automated relay on an asteroid within the. Chintaka system, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All the story points revolve around that and all oh, the th those three episodes. And one of the wall maps had AR558 just randomly like way out beyond Cardassia and Bajor, out in kind of neutral space between the thing. And Jeff saw that, picked it up, and he actually has AR558 in his book. If you go look, 
it's in twice. It's like there's a little pinpoint down near Chintaka, and then there's this little cute logo thing floating around out in front of the Ferengis somewhere, which is like, well, that's wrong. So not only did we get AR-558 back where it was, but we we fixed things like that. But the big thing about the Dominion, which is another example of why those wall maps don't make sense, right? But the big thing was they kept talking about how Vulcan and Earth and Andor, all the Federation homeworlds were threatened. This is going to threaten them, threaten them. Well, if you look at his his the, the map layout, if they're going to be threatened, that means the damn Dominion was right on their doorstep. So I came up with a, a plan, but you know most of the storytelling was happening over around Bajor and Cardassia and the old the stalking grounds over there where the things we know about were happening in Cardassian space mainly. So there was one kind of one open-ended thing, the whole Battle of Tyra that happened off screen at the beginning of the season, of the sixth season, and they talk about how much they lost at Tyra. So basically what – and then later on they talk about um, – uh, Belarus and, and uh, well, Beta Z is occupied, but Belarus mm-hmm. and Bolius are threatened, and, and Bolius is, is um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Benzar is occupied, and Bolarus is, Boli- the Bolians are threatened. So, what I came up with was having Tyra was never located, so I made Tyra kind of like, uh, like halfway across. If there was a northern front, quote unquote, and yes, I know it's 3D space, but, uh, this is hard to do talking about it without visualizing. It's almost like if you had – if Cardassia uh, was, say, North America and the home worlds the Kling- and with the Klingons beyond and the Romulans beyond were like, were like Europe, okay, and, uh, and the Klingon Empire was like North Africa. It's almost like everything was happening down in the Caribbean. <laughs> that was Cardassia, okay. But it's almost like if you follow the jet stream across over to Europe – that's the northern front that I came up with. So Tyra is up there, and it's not so much that they and they and then it's like if they got to Iceland and they got to uh, the northern part, that's where that's where Jeff had uh, uh, the Bolians and the and the Bens are. But anyway, what I tried to do to pull back, and I know I've lost everybody in the weeds by now, but what I tried to do was put some choreography to the Dominion War using the established thing. And with just one or two or three main main little points, I think that happened. Because a lot of people are really hung up. I, I see Memory Alpha. I see people critiquing things. A lot of people are really hung up by the, the whole thing of the Romulans came in the war and immediately attacked Cardassia uh, along, the, along the front, along the border. And my thing to that is, we say the border. Well, Romulus had a border, and in Jeff's system, you know, it's like the card, which is the thing that Mike and Rick came up with on the show. It just didn't get used a lot, but it was. I don't understand this lingering opposition to that because that's what everybody used. The only people who didn't weren't clued in were the DS9 writers, but then they were notoriously anti-tech. <laughs> and right. Yeah. Ron kind of knew and would kind of roll his eyes because he didn't want to be the anal tech head in the writers' room of DS9. So when the you know the which the other thing is too that I tried to settle in the book is the the entire phrase Alpha Quadrant powers. You know, it's like well, if it really there's if we really have the Alpha and the Romulans and Klingons are in the Beta Quadrant, why do they always call them the Alpha? Alpha Quadrant powers. Well, it's because mm-hmm. it was the Dominion's phrase, and the focal point of the war was Bajor and the and the wormhole. Right. So that's all in the Alpha Quadrant. But it, if it's also a construction of the Dominion and everybody that's so Bajor, Cardassia, wormhole centric. So it's just a, it's just an, you know, we say the, 
you know, World War Two was the Allies and the Axis and the Western powers, but Russia was, you know, in the East, mm-hmm. quote unquote. So it's just a phrase. And I, I, so what I talk about is how it was a, it was a, a wartime phrase that, of course, they're not in the Alpha Quadrant, but it was just a handy, a handy label. Instead of saying the Alpha Beta powers or whatever is kind of gargantuan. So the book, I tried to fix that and, and even more importantly, give a path to that. And even kind of a southern thing. And if you think about in the Iraq, the first Gulf War, they talked about how they didn't go to Baghdad once they broke through the line at the, at the Kuwaiti border. But they could have, and that's the concept I use of there's really kind of a big open spot, and if they could just get past Beta Z and get through that area, they would have a straight shot into Andor and Teller and, and Risa and all those. So I've gone on and on here about the Dominion War, and that's only one of the ten maps. But um, the people that really get off on that stuff, I think I think will enjoy that. And uh, that's one thing I got to do that, that I don't think anybody's touched on, but it seemed very obvious to me once I got into it, so... Hopefully, the world will find peace now on this vital topic, this vital issue. Larry Nemechek, peace ambassador <laughs> to Star Trek fandom, right? No, how are you, Volt? Sarah <laughs> And still a cartographer. Yeah. So in terms of the, the art style and the visual style, is it different from the 2002 book? That, that style is, is – well, for one thing, Jeff did the 10th map, which is the History of the Federation map. So it's kind of like the best of that book times three <laughs> on steroids with more locators, more, you know, it's updated. Um, that's the map that has the Delphic Expanse located. We put, uh, there's just a ton of detail. There were a lot of things that got left out of that. There, I was coming across chunks of even original series stuff, like where the Doomsday Machine battle happened, uh, where the, where the uh, giant amoeba was, you know, where, you know. Or the Gamma 7A system. And some things had gotten, gotten put in the 2002 map. So they weren't errors. They were just omissions. So I kept finding those. And we got a lot of that in on uh, Jeff's big map. It keeps reminding me of like a National Geographic pullout map out of the magazine. But that's my name mm-hmm. for it. The other nine were split up between uh, an artist named Ali Reese who did the alien planets and the fine art print plan- uh, map. And um, a guy named Ian Full, Fullwood, who did the kind of the quote-unquote straight maps. And uh, those include uh, known space of the Alpha Quadrant and known space of the Beta. And um, they're set up so that you can like hang them together and they'll made up they'll made up along the edge. And you can have the known space of the Alpha Beta, which is mainly focuses on the Federation. Uh, one print is very cool. It was – and this was their idea – to be just an art print, but it's like an it's an act it's a, a, a accurate art print of all the major empires to their extent. So it looks like kind of like a a, a representational color blob thing. It's almost like Jackson Pollock and primary colors, but it's but it's all for real, and it's based on you know again based on Jeff's map. Um, and then we have we have an ancient man. One thing I should say: the press release said it's an ancient Vulcan map from Surak's time. It's an ancient map of the system, not just the not the planet. Not just so, the planet. Okay. Yeah, not the mm-hmm. planet. So, but we we get into but we we and I sur- again I surveyed to see what was the con- consensus of some of where fandom and the 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 pro novels and what people have done over the years as far as naming. You know, Vulcans, the whole thing about Vulcan had no moon. Well, the big thing they kept insisting on showing had to be a sister planet and how that had evolved from fans and pros alike and used in the movies and all that. And we kind of kind of came back around to that 
40 are done. And there's a, there's a Klingon map from right before Organia, so it's kind of bombastic and, and propaganda-ish. And um, there's a Romulan uh, perfunctory government map from the, 20, from the Next Generation era. And a Cardassian map from uh, before the peace treaty and before the withdrawal from from um, Bajor. So those are all. There's four alien perspective maps. The modern Cardassian and Romulan maps are translated in, into English, galactic standard, by them. The Vulcan has the ancient Vulcan has English added to it by our memory alpha. St- the whole thing is a memory alpha conceit. It's just like these are all digital and analog maps in the Memory Alpha archives, and our staff has pulled them out because they're the most popular things that people like to see when they come to Memory Alpha. And when so, you say Memory Alpha, you don't mean the website Memory Alpha, you mean Memory Alpha. Yes, I mean Memory Alpha. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yes. I'm so close to this, I'm not even thinking straight. Yes, <laughs> I mean Memory Alpha as once attacked by the Zetars, Memory Alpha. Right. Yes. Once overseen by Mira Romaine, Memory Alpha. Yes. Um, and yes, folks, it was third season, but it's one of those little tiny things that redeems the third season. Um, so yeah, so that was the conceit. So I'm a researcher, kind of like the way David David Goodman that did the Federation 150 was a was a professor at the Starfleet that wrote that history mm-hmm. book. I'm a staffer at Memory Alpha who who we pull things from the Antiquities Division and the different things and put them out um, in these big Walmart WalMarts wall charts. And there's a book <laughs> that goes with it. No, forget I even said that. Um, there's a Walmart at Memory Alpha. It's right <laughs> right next to the Starbucks. And doesn't. on the other side is the McDonald's. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no Brahms so still. Two questions about maps. First of all, who did the Riker's favorite pickup planets map? Ah, uh, you were you were sitting on that one, weren't you? Yeah. And it's and my how painful it can be. Um, well, we had a we had a big fight over whether we would represent the the Kirk's unofficial conquest planets or the Riker's favorite pickup planets. So we did a tie and didn't include them. But oh, okay, um, all right. So you know, we thought we'd throw in the Dominion War. Yeah. Oh, there's there's <laughs> oh, one yeah. that never gets mentioned: the Dominion War, and uh, we do a map uh, on the Romulan War. Uh, just a couple of years, and it's the conceit is that it's made just a couple of years after the war. So it's like the first couple of years of the Federation, and mm-hmm. it's so it looks like uh, Enterprise era graphics. And, okay, um, that's cool. It uses uh, it uses the. Choreog- the, the details that David did in his book the year before. So there's three main battles. Uh, there's some. There's three close-up battle maps on that one. It's a very you know kind of much more contained space. The Dominion War map has three close-up battles. It has one of the Chintakas and the uh, Operation Return. There's three close-up battles that kind of choreograph the individual battle with all the forces involved. So that was very cool. Uh, my other question is with the Klingon map, which is in the native Klingon, who did the Klingon language work on the map? Well, here's the thing. You know, back in the heyday, back in 1872, <laughs> when we were doing things, <laughs> there, there was a Klingon alphabet that had correlating English uh, sounds, phonetics. In fact, mm-hmm. if you get an ancient copy of one of Jeff's old uh, Trek background zines from the 70s, it's in there. But since then... For the sanity of you know Mike and Rick and the Next Generation staff, from Next Generation onward, and probably the movies, I guess, uh, they've taken pains not to have a direct translating alphabet uh, font. You know, they're purely fonts, which doesn't mean to say that when you uh, when you have a font in your in your computer and you're hitting keyboard strokes to make the font characters come up, you're hitting letters. So people have had fun with that 
including the, as we know, the IKV Nemechek on prophecy. But um, so there, it's not translated directly. So what you have is Klingon characters, but they ma- I mean, they were typed in. Does this okay. make sense? So because yeah, all the so- names are the names are Klingon, with a couple of exceptions, like Sherman's Planet. And we used uh, – Mark Okrand had done a Sherman's Planet translation a long time ago. Uh, Mark Okrand did one translation for me. And we're, we say Mark Okrand, we're talking about the developer of the Klingon language originally. Mm-hmm. There was one wacky – there was like an epsilon and the epsilon nebula in the middle of Klingon space that's mentioned by someone. And so rather than have a stupid – you know. Terran Greek letter there, I had Mark come up with a Klingon name for Epsilon and uh, Epsilon Nebula. So that's in the translation, not just the Klingon characters, but the tra- it's translated in the book. That's the only one that's like that. It's the only map that's totally native, and there's an okay. English translation in the book. And okay. in the and there you get the uh, so you know shout out to to Mark there for helping with it. So, so the the text on the map is in Klingon iconography. It's right. not in the transliteration of Klingon, which is being used for the the actual language when people want to study the language these days. Right, because okay. um, well, it's 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 the location of plate names. There is a, a place names. There is a there's a legend that takes up a big chunk of it, which is like you know being uh, braggadocious and you know chest beating and typically Klingon, whether you're smooth head or or bumpy head. Um, and that's all in the font, in the iconograph, iconography. Um, but you know, it's really funny cause it's, we, the, I mean, Ali did a great job with all the alien maps and there's some really, it, you know, everything is accurate as we know, even though you're trying to come up with an alien viewpoint, we, we really got into, uh, well, what would a Vulcan map, you know, cause it, it seems like most of the races, interact on a fairly um i don't want to say homogeneous level i mean you, you go to the absurd where did you ever notice in star trek how anybody's uh, shuttle will dock on anybody else's ship you know right it's yeah. the universal docking collar that they all even the worst of enemies all agreed would all be universally fitting and i talk in the book about how it's amazing again take your things and make texture out of it uh, it's amazing how most of the uh, starfaring races, you know, organize their charts where toward the galactic center is up, you know, on their two-dimensional representations, and the galactic uh-huh. rim, the outer area, is toward the bottom. Um, we kind of go there just to keep everybody sane. But the iconic, the uh, not just the lettering and the fonts, but the the art pieces. But it was really, you go back and you look at like the consoles and the maps in the series for for reference, and there's not that much. You get, you, you know, Klingon's probably the easiest, and color schemes and things. And we had, I think, we had the most fun with the Cardassian because it was we did one, and Ali did one. It was like, oh, that's cool. So um, again, the posters. If you're if you're a Klingon fan, if you're a Romulan fan or whatever, they're going to be accurate to the basically the system we think about, and then to the time period. But sometimes the time period is kind of a subtle thing. I mean, on a big Klingon map, to go out and draw a hunk that includes, you know, Sherman's Planet and um, a few other contested places, Organia, is uh, it's not that big a. You don't on a scale, you know, you're just moving a half inch out, so it's not that it's not that great. So we tried to find you know bloody ways to kind of make up for it, not look like they're trying to claim the entire galaxy, kind of a thing. Yeah, so I hope. As an art piece also, so I'm trying to say, aside from the Trek canon accuracy, 
artistically, they're really beautiful and uh, striking. And we tried to have them look like they each came from a different, you know, a different alien mind construct right. and um, design ethic. And um, so hopefully people will enjoy having them up on the wall. And um, Yeah, it's nice that they pull out and that they're so large. That's the first thing that I noticed mm-hmm. when details of the project came out, that they are very, very yeah. large maps. Um, there, there are a lot of people that have the idea that they come apart from the book or something. They start they're, – they're detached from the book to begin with. Like I said, there's right, five yeah. in a pouch, five in a pouch, and the book is in the middle. So – and it's it's right. forty seven north, so it's got the presentational people that saw the Star Wars, the Jedi, and the Sith books, and the way that the Federation hundred and fifty years book came on the pedestal. Nothing is as uh, we're not going that far with this, I think, because they want to make sure because the, the the maps themselves are a big logistical presentational cost and coolness factor. So we don't need anything extra to go you know to present like the pedestal kind of a thing. So. Um, yeah, I just um, – it's a combination of big and splashy and flashy and also some real, you know, brain-crunching Trek anal canonista <laughs> stuff yeah. that hopefully – you know, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel, but um, there were some things we had to develop a little further and update. So, you know, all around I hope um, – and some things I had very little to do with. We just said, here, do this. And then some things I was like up to my elbows in, so – yeah, it, it sounds like a huge project. And now how long, again, were you guys working on this? You said it was a very compressed timeline. I started exactly when we started shooting Star Trek Continues. <laughs> so January, oh, wow. okay. through, uh, January through the end of May. Wow. So, so that, we, yeah, we, that's we a lot of work Yeah, in a short it time. Was. And it was more than I think anybody thought. But then if you read David's interviews, that kind of I, – I know that our – I mean, Dave, I have to give props to our editors uh, – Dana Eulen, who was the main editor, and then Rosanna Broccoli, who was the art director, editor. And uh, they said that it was the, you know, they've done, they're uh, Becker Mayer's the book public packager, and they do franchise licensed books. They do, you know, open ended things too, all kinds, all, you know, hard, soft, you know, quilting books, uh, hard military plane book, <laughs> whatever. They'd done Star Wars, they'd done other franchise books, and they said this was the most complex thing they've ever worked on. As soon as they got their eyes, you know, manually uncrossed at the end of it, they were just like, I hope you guys know what. And, and Jeff went to town on his map, um, and he was kind of his own thing. And the, and uh, Allie and Ian, we were all working together, kind of a thing, keeping it go, the process and the, and the content both. And, um, and then, of course, our friend John Van Sitters at, at licensing. I was kind of, I, if I was, if I had a question, if not so much a question, but if I was like, should I go here? Or should I do this? And he was like, well, maybe you should do this. Okay. But um, there were just a few of those kinds of things. Most of the time, it kind of, once they came up with the concept, and then I put in my two cents and I said, let's do this. And then it evolved. It kind of took off. One thing that I was surprised, though, I, I and I hope comes out of this is um, after all these years, and all the people that are fans of the different culture, the alien cultures, I I would go online and kind of do shout outs for people just to see what people had done, much less if maybe we got somebody else involved at the very, very beginning. And I'm hoping if nothing else, this will you know, throw open a floodgate because I really and I know they're out there. I know they're out there painting away in their in their little local convention art show or whatever. But um, I I could I had a hard time finding people who did, you know, say Cardassian art, or Romulan art, 
and and even Klingon art. I mean, once you get away from the rules, not I mean the like graphical rules and looks of control consoles, or or just frames around portraits. I mean, what have you what have you seen? So you know, if anybody, you know, ping me at at my Trekland Facebook for you know guys, whoever's reading this. If you if you are an artist or you've come across, it's it, it's too late to be involved with this project, but it made me aware. That I don't really have a handle, and I, if there's somebody out there that's a budding great artist that has a really a knack for going, oh my God, you look at that, and in a nanosecond you know that's Romulan, you know, kind of a thing, or boy, this just is Cardassian, or this is Vulcan. Um, the Vulcans have kind of a sweep that's kind of easy to bring in to it, but. Um, mm-hmm. And you're talking about not illustrations of alien races and stuff, but you're talking about artwork that is done as if it were. A piece of art from that culture, like this is yes, how yes, yes, a Cardassian yeah. mind would yeah. conceptualize the world and and represent their world right. through art, or even or you know fine art, or even just graphical illustrations, just yeah. graphic designers, even. Um, yeah. And if somebody was the uh, you know if somebody was the equivalent of the Joseph Goebbels of the Klingon Empire, what would they be sticking? You know, we'd think about the heroic Soviet posters, uh-huh. you know, and the and the Nazi posters from the thirties. Um, you know, or even Uncle Sam from the states, or whatever. What would what would those people be doing? And and even though they're they're running around in warp, you know, starships and all that, and there's they have holography in some of the eras, and they have you know digital this and digital that. There's still a design mode, as you well know. There's still a design motif to go on there, and it was really funny. We started going back through. I mean, believe me, after the communicator and fact files and all that, I'm no I'm no stranger, much less you know John. Uh, to to combing through the files for reference, and it was really interesting because it was kind of like a black hole. We'd never really thought about about that. And art, different artists have illustrated books, you know, kind of. But things have been pretty representational. When they did the Federation book, they were talking about how they they needed you know graphical devices, and they kind of just came up with some really simple things to convey. If you go back and look to the book things they had on the Klingon and Romulan pages, and and whatever smaller races. Tholians or whatever, they we don't have a whole lot of that. We have their logos, <laughs> you know, their cultural logos. But um, anyway, it, it was kind of a, it was an interesting thing. So if nothing else, if people get this, get the Stellar Cartography Project and go, well, I could have done a better, you know, I I, I almost want them to like give me a yell so we can make a catalog of it because we thought about that and I, like I said, did an outreach through my channels, which you know aren't the entire universe, but I would think it would replicate around and I'd like to hear from people that way because I think there's as as we kind of have a boom in nonfiction I think uh, it's good to it's good to have a government file on these people well this leads me to one other question I had for you which now that you've worked on this book and this is going to be coming out in December and of course we've had Mike and Denise's on board the Enterprise D book come out. We've had the Star Trek Visual Dictionary come out. We've had, of course, Federation 150 that we've been talking about. How are you feeling about the future of Star Trek non-reference books moving forward? Because like you just said, we do seem to be in a boom. We had like many, many years where we really didn't have anything. And it, and, and we saw it tapering off too. You know, like the Voyager Companion yeah. felt kind of like going through the motions and then we didn't get one for Enterprise and then everything kind of disappeared. Do you, do you feel like... We're kind of in a, I don't know, renaissance of Star Trek nonfiction. Well, yeah, and I, and I, 
I remember back in the 70s and 80s, you'd say Star Trek nonfiction, and people would look at you crazy like, well, it's all nonfiction. What do you mean? I mean, it's all uh, it's all fiction. What do you mean? Like, what do you mean Star Trek nonfiction? None of it's real. No, no, but, the, the fans were saying it's all nonfiction, and the other people were saying right, it's right. all fiction, right? <laughs> and that was, that was my term, just to distinguish it from – because my little realm was – people say you're a writer, and if you don't mean a TV writer or a movie writer, they assume you mean a novelist. You know, the vaunted, right. famous – there's 40, 47 billion uh, Star Trek books on the New York Times bestseller list, yada, yada. And um, it was really – it was hard in the beginning to kind of say, no, I do um, I do like concordances and I do tech manuals and I do star maps and I do that kind of thing. And then later on even I do interviewing and you know episode noting kind of thing. So it was – I always used to say Star Trek nonfiction was the not fiction. Even though people would say, well, it's all fiction. Um, but even within that, what it's, it's good to, you know, th- there was a time when there was nothing actively being done, like the 80s, the 70s, especially in the 80s, when you felt like uh, what we had on film was never going to change. And there's all these gaps. And I used to call that gap filling. It's like, it's what Jeff did. It's what a lot of people did. Any of the books in the 70s, the blueprints and the, and the things in the 70s and 80s were all about. No one's ever going to give us more, so we have to do it ourselves. So let's all come up with, let's all put our heads together and come up with the best versions of things. And I used to have a joke about, I thought, well, there should be like this group of 20 people who were background fan fiends, and they should all kind of like meet around a big table and hash stuff out. And I had no idea that, I mean, I've got to find the letter where I talked about the committee, and I had a friend that used to always look at me and say, well, then why don't you just give it to the committee, <laughs> which, you know, they didn't exist. And I was like, can't they just – when they do these movies, can't they just like have one liaison to the committee in the credits or something so they don't come up with a you know a bonehead thing in one of the movies? And then, of course, Next Generation started, and we had 18 years of canon being cranked out, and we didn't have to worry about it. And now we're in a fallow time again, and so these – that's part of it. These things are coming out because we have gaps to fill even more now on different levels to happen, and – and it, it was very strange because I first started working on this project. I had to un, I'd been in, into canon after being a kid in the non-canon days and coming up with versions of things, then to be locked into canon for so long and be my own canon policeman. <laughs> I had to I had to unhinder my own brain to it's, it's Larry. It's okay. We could even like invent a planet over here if we need it to make sense of this. It's it's okay to do this, Larry. It's no one's gonna you know right now. We say no one's going to come back to prime, much less prime of 200 years ago or, you know, 22nd century prime and fill this in. So that was a little head thing I had to get through. Right. Now, Just you, wait till you, that next series comes out and it's all centered on the Battle of Tyra and then you're mm-hmm. screwed. And I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> and if we still have anybody still listening, <laughs> they're the ones that will get what we're talking about. We've lost everybody else along the way, but they um, will. All right. Well, the last thing on this, Larry, is to tell everyone when they can get their hands on it. It's scheduled for release on December 3rd. And we talked a little bit earlier about it being 47 North as the publisher. Now, 47 North is an imprint of Amazon. Of Amazon. Is this book only going to be available through Amazon? I, as I understand it, and it's again, it's a lot the way like David's book, the Federation book was, but right, it's almost like, uh, yeah, pre-ordering, pre-order at Amazon, and it's almost like pre-ordering is the uh, likes, you know, or joins, or uh-huh. or hits, views, of um, 
of Amazon. It's like if, if everybody will go out and pre-order on this now, even though you have to wait. I've already seen people screaming in agony that they have to wait till December, at which time it will be like in retail places and you can get it otherwise when it when it's there. Or closer into the, the sale date, you can get it other places. But for right now, okay. you, it's, it's through Amazon. But also the more pre-orders, the more that bodes well for them going, oh, look, look at the pent-up demand here if they're, the, if they're that excited about this now. So it acts like a like a Facebook likes, you know, or a YouTube views kind of counter. So the right. more people go and pre-order it now and not wait till November, the more um, marketing demand impact it will have on future nonfiction guys. So even though it's agonizing to plunk down your money now and wait till December, it actually has a good benefit to do that. So yeah. I'm not, and I'm not just saying that as the author. I'm saying that as let's all have more of this. That's what I do with like the Enterprise Blu-rays, for example. You know, the mm-hmm. day they're available for pre-order, I just pre-order them because, uh, you know, I know I'm going to buy them anyway, and I like to show. Well, yeah, there's interest. You know, we're mm-hmm. waiting for these, so give us the next one, give us the next season. You know, give us DS9, give us Voyager. Let's get everything remastered. Let's get it all in Blu-ray. Uh, plus, you know, if you do pre-order something through Amazon, they don't actually take your money until they ship it. So it's kind of like you're just holding yes, it. You're saying. Yep. I want this, and then when it comes out, then they're going to charge you. Um, looking plus, you know, often the pre-order prices are great. And looking at this book right now, the list price on it is seventy nine ninety nine, but the pre-order price is forty seven ninety nine. What was that again, Chris? <laughs> forty seven. No, no. Did you have anything to do with <laughs> that, <did>. Larry? <laughs> no, I actually didn't. Somebody had to point that out to me, and I just died. Yeah, I died. Um, Pretty funny. So, how can you turn down a Star Trek background book that sells for forty seven ninety nine? You can just see a little <laughs> hashtag floating in front of it. Yeah, um, yeah, Absolutely. pretty funny. So, yeah. I, you know, I hope I, I, uh, I, I saw some misconceptions people had right out of the gate, but not not horrible things. But you know, saying, "Oh, I hear you can take the maps right out of the book." It's like, no, no, they're separate. They're made to be separate. They're very cool and pop out yeah well, i hope I think anybody that thinking... loves cosplaying and you know loves a culture from you know, the klingon fan vulcans to i hope you know people are because it was we had great artists but it was really a challenge here we think after f- almost 50 years of star trek that we know i mean Kl- klingon yeah but even in varying things your know, costume a prop a ship that's one thing but to think about their graphical 2d analog representations of how they would present this was kind of a thing and we were we were doing it on a compressed schedule. That was insane, but it was, it was kind of you know. And Allie had all the alien maps, so she, I think she had a tougher. I mean, she had the alien maps tougher that way. Uh, Ian had the straight maps, which were just packed with detail, so it was tougher that way for him. So, and then Jeff just pulled it all out of his um, brain <laughs> and added to it on his map. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, so it was it was kind of an incredible project all the way around and uh, anyway i hope everybody's i hope everybody's happy with it and i hope people tear themselves away from the maps long enough to read the, the guidebook and see some of my thoughts which are visualized in the dominion war map and some of the other some of the other corners of things that needed to be updated and massaged around a little bit so i just hope it goes down well because it's the kind of thing that uh i love doing and and as again that's it's the first thing that hit me when i was a kid so on top of all the stuff I've done since then that people think of. so. And plus, the best way to read 
all those gaps that you've filled in about the Dominion War in the Northern Front down there around the Caribbean, as you said, will be to read the book while you sip a nice glass of Dominion rum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dominion rum. Yeah, we're taking over. <laughs> or, um, yeah, what would be the uh, the Viking equivalent there on the Northern Front? Anyway, every time I say the Northern Front, I think of Hogan's Heroes and talking about the Eastern Front. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. of, of Monty Python's All Quiet on the Western Front sketch. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. The whole thing, you know, what's funny is uh, I'd find these little pockets that Jeff did so much and he had help, you know, because they, they crammed a whole lot out in a short time for the O2 book, which was kind of amazing. And But, you know, every once in a while I come across a little corner of, uh, you know, something that had just been a blind spot. And uh, one thing in the Dominion War that didn't get located on the map just for general purposes, was none of the details of the Defiant were on the map anywhere. None of the planets and bases and things mentioned. So I got to locate all that and give it a geography, which had nothing to do with the big scope of the war. That was that was something simple. So, And uh, I should say that there's a guy with a Facebook page, uh, a guy named John Bass, and um, uh, he was doing a Facebook page where it was as it was like the Facebook page for Starfleet Academy during the Dominion War, where they're posting daily headlines of the war. Oh, yeah, that's the UFP Starfleet Academy page, right? Yeah, with the cadets knowing they're about to they'll be going off to that, and they were fleshing out the Dominion War with that point of view. And he had done a lot of work, and I just totally came across it. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I, I, he didn't know what I was doing exactly, but I threw some things out and he liked my, you know, we kind of, I was like, what's, what's the, what are the odds of finding anybody that's actually like trying to flesh out the Dominion War right now while I'm sitting here trying to do it myself? So that was a happy surprise. And he was, he was, he was a help. We did some original math on the Dominion War. So, yeah. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can go check it out. There's a lot of stuff over there. Uh, anyway, I, if I keep thinking here, there's all these little nooks and crannies. That was the big thing was I, I did a lot of work on. But we, we just tried to fix little things here and there and um, update. Like I said, the Delphic Expanse was a big um, was a big thing. We added in just a lot of things that didn't make it in the O2 book. So it was a good chance to, whether it was a map or a book, to, to do an upgrade after 10 years. You, it's kind of amazing how much stuff – we think it's been a fallow time, and there was a ton of stuff to, to put in there. And all we had to do with um, – well, all we had to do with JJ's was, uh, like I said, put in the Hobus supernova and account for that. And, uh, the and we kind of. Subspace supernova. Yes, the subspace supernova. <laughs> and, uh, the subspace shockwave supernova. And, um. Yes. And we kind of went with the theory that they're doing in STO about they're, they're having a fight, but that Rator is kind of the, uh, the preliminary provisional new homeworld, new capital world anyway. And we kind of, went with that basically it's like the timing of this collection is the year before the hobus subspace supernova so everything is set out to normal time and there's just a little bit of an update in the romulan section because we did the conceit of this is all on database and we've just pulled it into hard copy for you to have in your home kind right. Of thing. right so right. um which was a little fun thing to play with too we got to play with the the, the star trek uh the you know the modern day metaphor for that and talk about the yeah. ancient Vulcan and cling on as if it was, you know, from back in the day. So, Well, I'm glad you were able to join us today and, and fill in some blanks on this because, again, we've all been reading the press release, which 
didn't give a whole lot of background about mm-hmm. it other than what the maps were. So it was really nice to hear the background of the development as well as, you know, the kinds of things yep. that you are updating and what we can expect from the book. Yeah, this is more than I, I did do a post at Trekland about it. I tried to flesh out the, the press release a little more. I saw a lot of people say, oh, I can't wait to see the Vulcan map. And I wanted to also say, well, it's the Vulcan system. So if you're expecting a detailed, you know, a Bezier style uh map of Vulcan. We don't, we didn't do that. Maybe maybe that's a good thing for the next go round because I think we're all kind of exploring what to do with the next round and where to go and that kind of thing. Of course, the next time you do this, the next time you update this, instead of having the fold out maps, you're, you're going to have the, the, the roll up touch sensitive material that Microsoft's been developing and you'll just pull those out and you'll be able to actually tap and get information about the planets and all Right there just, on the rollout maps. Just the right? way you would like roll out your little miniature keyboard and go up in the uh, Jeffrey Steps exactly. and play that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I guess yes, I exactly. guess we should do that before we jump into a full blown holographic. Uh, you know, a, a Daniel style. Oh, look here and look there. <laughs> <laughs> temple that's Temple right. War version thing. So anyway, so I, right. yeah, I hope everybody's excited. That like I said, it's been amazing. It's been so cool to see. Um, the reaction online. See, that's what, you know, in 02, it's amazing also to think when this book came out in 02, you know, we didn't have the on, we didn't have social media then, which makes it sound like the dark ages now. And uh, people have already been so excited. Um, and to hear that Jeff's involved again and uh, that people, the reaction to David's book last year and to know this is 47 North and Amazon again. So, and Becker Mayer involved. So, um, Everybody's just been 100% positive online, so I hope everybody jumps in and, you know, I can say do the pre-order and be crass and self-serving, but it actually does have a, you know, a good purpose for building the return of Star Trek nonfiction, so. Yeah, it's good for us to show everyone uh, involved in publishing, licensing and such that, you know, as fans, we're looking for this material. So, well, before we go, Larry, tell everyone where they can find you and also if there's anything else you have going on that you want to pitch out there. Uh, well, uh, LarryNemichek.com, the Trekland blog, and um, my Facebook is Larry Nemechek's Trekland, and uh, Larry Nemechek on Twitter. That's very simple if you can get past Nemechek. And uh, we're gearing up. We've got Comic-Con here in a couple of weeks in San Diego, and I have a Con of Wrath panel there. And, um, and then Vegas is next month, the Vegas convention, and uh, we'll do, we're doing a panel on this book at Vegas in oh, cool. under the star trek.com wing and uh, i'm doing a couple of panels we're not the star trek.com is doing the trivia this year but i'm doing a couple we're going to do one on the state of things where everybody can sound off and um oh i'm i'm moderating the roddenberry mission log pod panel <laughs> uh, oh, cool. at vegas okay. yeah. and then this fall there's a couple of things brewing as far as appearances go but um haven't uh, firmed those up, but hopefully I'll have some fall, couple of fall cons at least. And we're going to go back and shoot on Star Trek Continues in October for the second episode. And the script's supposed to be ready within the month. So everybody's been incredible about the reaction to that ongoing. And um, if you if you haven't seen Star Trek Continues, go see it and StarTrekContinues.com and go to the Facebook because there's there there's behind the scenes and funny things at the Facebook page if you're a fan already or whatever. We talked about this before, I think, but just make sure in the second episode that you get to drink a mint julep. 
<laughs> well, we might, yeah. I, I mean, it's almost like now we don't want to do like a classic line because it would be like, well, that's just so token. So I think that mint julep may be something we can slide. Me personally, I'm gunning for a dress uniform because I wore everything else in the first one. So that's the only thing I missed. So we'll see how that goes. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Larry. And everyone go out and pre-order Stellar Cartography. Yeah. Chris, thanks a lot for having me on to talk. And um, I'd just be interested to see what kind of feedback you all get from uh, what we're talking about today. We'll see how it goes. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed hearing about the nitty-gritty of Stellar Cartography from Larry. It was really nice to find out what's really going to be in this book. And I'm looking forward to it myself because I've got a little bit of wall space here in the studio that isn't covered with Star Trek things yet. And as a Niner, I think a Dominion war map is exactly what I need. So if you'd like to share your thoughts on stellar cartography or anything I talked about in news today, you can go to trek.fm contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to us by email. If you'd like to talk to us or other listeners in the forums, you can go over to trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for literary treks, as well as pretty much any other topic you can think of related to Star Trek. And if you'd like to send us a voicemail, you can easily do that from anywhere on the website. Just look on the right side of any page and you'll see a tab that says send voicemail. Click that and a box will pop up. From there, you can use your webcam's mic to record a message and upload it to us as an MP3 file, and we would love to hear from you by voice. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek, and of course, you'll always find us on Twitter, tweeting about Star Trek under username trekfm. If you'd like to look up Matthew, you'll find Matthew at mattrushing02 on Twitter, and if you'd like to find me, my username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You'll find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username. And you'll also find my personal website under that name as well. That's cbrianjones.com. If you'd like to, you know, find out a little bit more about my interests and such outside of Star Trek. You'll also find me elsewhere on the network every week with Matthew on the Orb, where we talk about DS9. Also with Kate Walsh on our new show, Warp 5, where we talk about Enterprise. And you'll find me on The Ready Room, where we talk about all five live-action series, as well as the movies. And you'll find Larry on there with me quite often when we talk about TNG and sometimes other series as well. So go check that out. You'll find all these shows in iTunes and on Stitcher, or you can stream them from the website. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsors. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, online store, or really anything else you can imagine. Create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. Go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial, and then use offer code TREK7 to save 10% on your lifetime purchase on your accounts. Also, please visit trekfan.org. This is an amazing chance to come together with fans to do more than just talk about Star Trek. You know, we, we all love to talk about Star Trek. That's why we do all these podcasts. But if we want to get to that Star Trek future, we need to do more. And at trekfan.org, you'll be collaborating to solve puzzles and complete mission objectives in real life. So turn your love for Star Trek into something that can help us all move toward that future we love. Support us and TrekFan by visiting trekfan.org. Solve that first puzzle to take the next step on your adventure. 
And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight new alien-themed badges as a thank you for your contribution that are perfect for your shirt, for your bag, or even your dress uniform. They're 44mm badges with original illustration by Tobuushi, who does most of the art that you see on our website. Those are at trek.fm slash donate, and your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth needed to bring you this programming every week. So thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Matthew will be back with me next week. And until then, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.